The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are looking today at the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, one of the most famous stories from the Bible. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you will probably be familiar with this story, with David and Goliath, maybe with Noah's Ark, and with Israel crossing the Red Sea. It's a famous one. It's a goodie. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to start tackling this passage. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, your, for the provision of your word to us this morning, that we can look at this, look at this book, and we can come to know you, Lord. As you have revealed yourself to us uh, in your word, Father, we ask, God, that you would do that again this morning. That we, would, we ask, Lord, that you would grow us in our faith, grow us in our love and affection for you, grow us in, in a deeper desire to, to want to know you more, Lord. And as we've been talking about worship this morning, Lord, would, would you plant in us a deep desire to want to worship more? A deep desire to go further than we have been before, Lord. A deep desire to, to glorify yourself in our singing, but also with, with all of our lives, God. Holy Spirit, we know that when you come and speak to us, you speak to us as nobody else does. You cut through the mess, and like a surgeon, you you pinpoint the exact thing that needs to be targeted. And Holy Spirit, our request this morning is that you would do that for us. You would cut through the mess and all of the facades that we might throw up, all the masks that we might put on, all of the the pretense that we might enjoy. God, we ask you would move that to the side and speak to our hearts. Change us this morning and make us more like you. Amen. Around uh, five or six weeks ago, a buddy and I uh, climbed Mount Biwa. Has anybody here climbed Mount Biwa before? You know it? Yep. It's about 556 meters high. And uh, we started climbing this mountain. It was a Saturday morning, good weather. It was going really great. And about halfway up, my friend, his name is Ben, uh, he had a serious fall. Now, I'm not one of those people who confuses the word literally with figuratively. So you know how there's people who are like, they saw a bird and they say, I literally almost died. No, you didn't literally almost die. You, f- you literally saw a bird and you figuratively almost died. My friend Ben fell down this part of this mountain and he literally almost died. I don't say that sparingly. It was terrifying. Now, he's, not a small, he's a bit shorter than I am, but he's a stocky guy. And he fell about 12 meters down the cliff, uh, hitting, uh, tumbling backwards over and over again. Three or four times he somersaulted backwards. An absolute miracle that he didn't break a neck, um, didn't sprain an ankle. And if it wasn't for a, a well-placed bush that just caught him... <laughs> Or if it was five meters that way, um, if it wasn't for that, he would have gone off the edge of this cliff and would have perished. It was, it was serious. It was absolutely terrifying. And we had this moment where I went down and I made sure he was okay and he was fine. He got up and he was bleeding. He was scratched up and bruised and sweaty and just very kind of embarrassed by the whole thing. We had this moment where we had to ask the question, is this really worth it? 
Like we've heard that the view from the top of Mount Biwar is amazing, but is this really worth it? Is it worth our own lives? Now we decided it was, and <laughs> we kept climbing. Um, and we got to the top very cautiously, and we got to the bottom very cautiously again. Uh, he wanted to keep going, so I was like, man, if you want to keep going, that's fine, we can do that. But is this worth it? Is a question that we often will ask when we're confronted with something big in front of us. So we might ask, is this worth it when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. and we were meant to go for a run? And 5 a.m. version of Jimmy wants to go back in time to 10 p.m. version of Jimmy and punch him in the face. Because I thought last night when I said the alarm, this is, that's going to be a great idea, grinding tomorrow morning, excellent. But 5 a.m. version of Jimmy is uh, less sure. Is this worth it? We ask, is this worth it when we're halfway up a mountain and our friend falls and almost kills himself? We ask, is this worth it the night before the exam? And we think to ourselves, do I really want to be a teacher? Do I really want to be a doctor? Do I really want to finish this course? Do I really want to actually show up? We ask this question, is this worth it, when we're in the middle of a difficult season and we lack the energy to move forward? And I think if we can be honest for a moment... We, ask the, we, we often ask the question, is this worth it of the path that God has us on? The pathway of discipleship is, a, is one that is littered with trials and difficulties and afflictions. It is by no means an easy road, and we will likely find ourselves asking often, is this worth it? We might ask, is this worth it when we come face to face with the secular worldview around us? We might ask, is this worth it when our kids are treated differently because they go to church? We might ask, is this worth it when the culture around us seems to be only becoming more and more hostile towards people of faith? And today in Exodus, God's people hit upon a really significant obstacle and they ask, is this worth it? The Israelites are free. God has rescued them, but it's not long before their future is suddenly thrown into doubt. And they ask, is this worth it? The answer that our text gives us is what I'll call the main point for today. The answer that our text gives us is, God is awesome. Look at what he's done for us. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. God is awesome. Look at what he's done for us. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. So just to set the scene, and we're looking uh, about halfway through Exodus 13 to about halfway through Exodus 15. That's the ground we're covering this morning. Pharaoh had just let the people of Israel go free. And they're on their way out of Egypt following God uh, as he was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God led them to a place called Pihiroth in between Baal-zephon and the Red Sea. Now, exactly where these locations are is either unknown or it's disputed, but what is clear here is that this is not a good position for Israel to be in. They're stuck. And it kind of looks like they have no idea where they're going. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Pharaoh starts to regret letting the people go. And so it says that he assembled 600 of his finest chariots. So not just 600 chariots, but 600 of his best chariots. And then the rest of the chariots with an officer in each chariot to hunt them down. 
This is an elite military force, perhaps the most elite military force in the world at that moment, expending all of its efforts to hunt down and recapture the Israelites. And so with their backs against the Red Sea, the Israelites start, they see the army approaching and, they, and a panic ensues. They cry out to God, they start complaining to Moses, and this is where they ask that question, is this worth it? Was this really worth it? Now we're going to come back to that question in a moment because God has a plan. He parts the Red Sea before them. The waters stand up like a dam, like a dam walls on either side. And the, Egyptians, the Israelites can cross through on dry ground. We know the story. The, the Egyptians then follow them through. And when the Israelites are safe out the other side, God brings the, the sea back to its regular course. And this elite military force is wiped out in the blink of an eye. It says, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So what once enslaved them was now destroyed and posed no threat of ever enslaving them again. And then if you look at the beginning of Exodus 15, the Israelites break into song. Moses breaks into song. His sister Miriam breaks into song. She gets a tambourine out. And it's excellent. They sing this really wonderful song together. And that's where we're going to finish up later on, looking at Exodus 15. But if you look at Exodus 15, and you compare the, the exaltation and the glory in the song that they sing in Exodus 15, there's a massive contrast with the despair and the crying out that they, that they articulate, that they express in Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, they're bitter, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're even cynical. Reading from 14.11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Can you feel the cynicism? Can you feel the pessimism? They're kind of not, they're not making a joke. They're, just, they're not making light of the situation. That They're so angry. Like, what's wrong, Moses? Was there literally not enough ground in Egypt for us to be buried in? You had to bring us out here. Like, seriously, Moses, didn't we say this was going to happen? Why don't you just leave us where we were? I mean, sure, we were miserable, but at least we were happy. In other words, was this really worth it? We can feel like this sometimes, can't we? If you haven't had a moment where you have had to ask that question about trusting God, is this really worth it? Just wait. You'll get your turn. It might be one massive thing in your life. It might be dozens or hundreds of smaller things, one after the next after the next. Maybe the last couple of years has felt like an ongoing wave smashing you in the face over and over again. You can barely get a chance to breathe and then suddenly another wave comes. Maybe you're wondering, is this really worth it? 
Is following God really worth it? This is the despair that Israel experienced. And you can see their despair in, the word, in, the, in verse 12. And just pay attention to the word serve. They said, isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That word serve there is the Hebrew word avad. And that word avad describes the slavery. It describes their servitude to the Egyptians. However, that word avad is also the word of choice for Moses whenever he says, let my people go so that they may worship. Avad me. This is, this is the point. They were serving the Egyptians and God was freeing them to come and serve him. They were enslaved to the Egyptians and God was freeing them to come and worship him. Trading in a master who would, who would kill them and destroy them and trading that for a master who, is free, who would free them and provide for them. A good summary of the entire book of Exodus is freed to worship God. That's why God was freeing them. He wasn't just freeing them for the sake of freedom. He was freeing them so that they would worship him. It wasn't freedom to be their own lords and masters. They gave that a red hot hot go. And you can see how they gave that a red hot go throughout the Old Testament. And it's a disaster. They end up becoming just like Egypt. No, God was freeing them to worship and serve him. And so in verse 12, for them to say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, that's like saying, is God really worth it? We used to serve the Egyptians and it was horrible, but now we're serving God and we're about to die. Is this actually worth it? Life seemed to be so much easier before this whole Yahweh nonsense. I mean, sure, they killed our baby boys. Sure, life was hard. Sure, we were under slavery. Sure, they whipped us and beat us at will. Sure, we had no justice. Sure, life was horrible. Sure, we never got a day off. Sure, we were kicked into the dust. But at least we had food in our bellies. At least we had air in our lungs. And we might find ourselves having the same kinds of thoughts. Man, life just seemed easy before I started trusting God. Sure, my standing before him was one of condemnation and I was bound to spend eternity in hell. But at least I got to spend my money how I wanted to. At least I got to think of myself all the time. At least I didn't have to worry about sharing my faith with other people. At least I didn't have to worry about what some people might think of me because I trust in Jesus. At least I could just serve myself and not those around me. And what we're saying is, I liked it better when I was in charge. That just seemed to work out for me better. So what does God have to say to his people about this? We can see this in Moses' reply in verse 13. He says, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today... You will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. So firstly, he says, don't be afraid. Now, it's easier to say don't be afraid than, it's easier said than done, right? 
Like if someone comes to you and says, don't be afraid, it's not a switch that you can just flick and be like, oh, okay, I never thought of that option. Thank you. We need a basis for not being afraid. And the Bible over and over again tells us, do not be afraid. God commands his people to not be afraid. Someone told me a little while ago that the command to not be afraid occurs 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year. And I thought, that's amazing. So I researched that. It's not true, unfortunately. But it does say it 146 times. And that's still a hell of a lot. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, do not be afraid. But it's not a command that is just, hey, don't be afraid. It comes with, with a basis. It says here, don't be afraid. God is going to save you. We've got many reasons in this life to be afraid, but God gives us plenty of reasons to not be afraid. My favorite of these is Isaiah 41 verse 10, where God says, Do not fear, for, well, here's why, I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. You're not your God, I am your God. Don't be afraid then. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Here in Exodus, the reason to not be afraid is because God is going to accomplish their salvation. They're not going to have to do anything. This is why the next command is to stand firm. Don't panic. Don't flee. Don't, there's no fight. There's no flight. Stay where you are. Stand firm. This reminds me of uh, what Paul says in Ephesians 6, where he tells Christians to put on the whole armor of God so they can stand against the schemes of the evil one. I wonder how this would have been experienced or heard by the Israelites. Their backs against the Red Sea, a formidable force coming towards them. And Moses says, don't go anywhere. Stay exactly where you are. The third thing that Moses says to Israel is, Be quiet. Now, I love this one. The idea here is for them to stop talking and see what God's about to do. What they teach us in primary school, you've got two ears and one mouth. It means you should listen twice as much. If you're talking, you're not listening. I was told that a lot in school. If you're talking, Jimmy, you're not listening. God says to them, hey, be quiet. Because something's happening here. You need to pay attention to what God is doing. This is what God wants his people to do. Don't look at the charging enemy and conclude that this is the end of the story. Don't look at the, the waves and the things that are coming against you and saying, this is it, this is, this is done. Get your eyes on the Lord's salvation. Get your eyes on what he is doing. Moses says, see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. See it. Look at it. Some of us here in this room don't have the gospel on regular repeat in our lives. You need to. You need to see the good news of Jesus over and over again. If you think you're exempt from that, you're wrong. 
you're wrong. I've got good news for you. You're wrong. You need to hear the gospel every day. You need to get good at preaching it to yourself day by day, three times a day. Reminding yourself, reflecting on the good news of Jesus. So see the Lord's salvation. See the fact that God is going to save you. God has saved you. God will save you. He will finish this job. This is the Lord's salvation. This is what the the book of Exodus is about, the Lord's salvation. He says, see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish. We can get so tied up on trying to grab hold of of salvation by our works and trying trying to earn our way into God's good favor, trying to impress God all the time, trying to hope that we can stay in God's good graces. No, salvation is something that he accomplishes. He does it, not us. This is the salvation that he will accomplish for you today. Do this today. See, the Israelites needed to zoom out and see the full panorama of everything that God was doing. They needed to get their eyes on the Lord's salvation that he was accomplishing. And the message for us is the same. We need to get our eyes on the salvation that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. This means getting our eyes fixed upon the good news of Jesus, that because of him, our sin has been dealt with. God has put all of our guilt and our shame onto Jesus, and he absorbed it all. Jesus drank down the entire wrath of God, and he left none for us. If you are in Christ and there is no judgment awaiting you, Jesus drank that cup dry. It's his. Your guilt is now his. Your shame is on him. Your sin is now on him. And he has credited us with his righteousness. That's the gospel, folks. Three times a day, minimum. Get your eyes on the Lord's salvation. Romans 5 says this in verse 2. We have obtained access through him, that's Jesus, by faith into this grace in which we stand. So our footing is in the grace of Jesus Christ. We st- if you're in Jesus, if you're here, you're a Christian, it means your foundation of your life is grace, the unmerited favor of God. That whatever else is going on for you right now, your truest reality is that you stand in grace. Your truest reality is that the foundation of your life is the grace of God. We have access now to God through Jesus, by faith, into the grace in which we stand. And then it goes on and says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope in this life is in something that we do not see yet see, but we know to be a reality. Biblical hope. See, the word hope sometimes feels a bit weak. Like, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. We have no idea what's going to happen. Biblical hope is a lot more sure than that. Biblical hope is kind of like a present under the Christmas tree, and it's got our name written on it. Now, we don't know the contents of it fully. We don't fully see it, but our name's on it. And we can see the shape of it. We can see the size of it. We can pick it up and feel the weight of it. And we know that there's going to come a day where we will get to open that, and it's going to be ours. And, and Christian hope is like that. We, we know that we can put our trust in God, and we, even though we don't fully see him yet. 
we can trust in God. Our hope can be in God. And Paul says, we hope in the glory of God. Our hope is that God is going to glorify himself. That's our hope. Our hope is that God is going to glorify himself. And he does that through the redemption of sinners making them more and more like his son, a task that will be completed when we enter heaven and we are glorified ourselves. And God is going to be glorified. God is going to do that. God glorifies himself and that is good news for us because if God's going to do that, that involves us, that includes us being brought into heaven with him. That is our hope. Friends, we've got to zoom out. We've got to get that perspective, that kingdom perspective don't look at the chariots that are coming towards you. Don't look at whatever you're facing this week. See it, but also see it in light of the grand spectrum of everything that God is doing. See it in light of everything that God is doing. For many of us, our hardest days are still in our future. I would say for most of us, our hardest days are still in our future. And we might lose hope. We might ask, is this really worth it? The answer is yes. Because God is at work to achieve and accomplish something far bigger and grander than we can ever expect. And this is why in Moses' command to God's people, there's a a really strong future aspect to this. The Israelites need to zoom out so they can see the full gamut of everything everything that God was up to. They had just seen the ten plagues. Against all odds, the Egyptians who had once enslaved them were now funding their departure. They they paid for them. They, They gave them silver and gold and their stuff and said, please leave. If God had done that for them, of course God was going to finish what he started. They were to see the Lord's salvation, which he would accomplish. And getting clarity on what God has done for us in our past and what he has promised to do for us in our future, that frames the way that we handle today. If we lose sight of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and if we lose sight of what God has promised to do for us in our future that is guaranteed, we will despair of today. Today will make no sense. Today will be frustrating and we will just hope to go to bed that night and just forget it for a few hours and then get up the next morning and handle it again. But if we keep our eyes on what God has done for us in Jesus, and if we keep our eyes on what he has promised to do for us, the the guaranteed future hope of glory, then that will help us handle today. We'll celebrate what happens today. So how do we do that? How do we keep our eyes on what God has done? How do we keep our eyes on what God has promised to do? The answer that we receive in our text, believe it or not, is worship. God freed his people to worship and serve him. Throughout this time, God had been flexing his power and displaying his glory so that they would know that he was God. And then this finally comes to this point after they cross the Red Sea. God, called, God says to Moses, stretch out your hand across the ocean and return to its course. It says from verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked through on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Pay attention to that detail. They saw their bodies. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. They had finally left Egypt. God had dealt with their enemies, and when they saw all of that, they worshipped. And then we can move into Exodus 15, where we get this worship song. We get the words of the content of this worship. And we're going to walk through Exodus 15 quite briefly. But I could sum it up with these words. God is awesome. Look at what he's done for us. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. It's a song. The chorus is God is awesome. It comes up three times. These five refrains, the beginning, the middle, the end, finishes. God is awesome. Different words each time, but God is awesome. Deals with our past, deals with our future. So I'm just going to simply read out Exodus 15, verses 1 to 18, and make some comments as we go. It says, and this is the God is awesome, the first chorus. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Now, you probably won't sing that song on a Sunday morning normally. The Lord is my strength and my song. That one's more likely. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. God is awesome. As Israel stands on the eastern shores of the Red Sea, looking back at the turbulent waves as, those, as the waters come crashing down, they recognize that God had become their salvation. When they had previously grumbled against God's salvation, they now see that he is their salvation. Not just what he did for them, but he himself was their salvation. See, our hope is not just in what Jesus has done for us. Our hope is in the person of Jesus. Our hope is not, is not just a transaction that we make and, and we go, thank you very much. It's a pleasure doing business with you, Jesus. You can have my guilt and I'll have your righteousness and I'll see you in heaven. No, he is our salvation. We were created to have a relationship with God. It's not just about what God has done for us. It's about who God is. And can I encourage you, wherever you're at in your relationship with God, grow in that. Seek God out. Seek God. As I talk about the idea of having a relationship with God, I know for some of you, your heart just sank a little bit. Because you know deep down that your relationship with God is not probably where you want it to be or where you feel like it should be. And you come to church on Sundays and you kind of try to put on a bit of a show and you know the right answers are life group to kind of keep people off your back. But deep down, you know, oh, it's not great. If that's you, don't despair. You're not alone. You're in good company. Seek God. Just turn to God and say, God, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to grow my knowledge of you. This is our God and we will praise him. Our God is a warrior. He is the I am. That is his name. Then it moves into the second refrain. Look at what he's done for us. This is the past aspect. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. 
the elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. I find it absolutely incredible. This elite military force, huge, took God a second to destroy them. Just lured them into the sea, wiped them out. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your, you overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. Some of you know too well the temptation of sin. You know too well the, the, the voice of the enemy against you who wants to divide the sport, who wants to pursue and overtake you. You feel that deeply. Read verse 10. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like dead in the might, like, like lead in the mighty waters. God destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, which meant that Egypt no longer posed a threat to Israel. They no longer have to look over their shoulder or fear what might come from their past. They saw their bodies dead on the seashore. And because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to look over our shoulder or fear about the slavery of sin and worry that it might come for us. In Romans 8, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. If you are in Jesus Christ, then right now you are standing on the eastern shores of the Red Sea and your enemies are dead on the shore. Your sins no longer condemn you. Back to the chorus. God is awesome. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. And you can start to see the transition from past tense to future tense in this refrain. But the key thing here is that we can point out is God's faithful love. God will lead the people that he has redeemed. Whatever you are facing today or this week, if you are in Christ, then you have been redeemed by Jesus at the cost of his life. And if that's you, you are assured that God will lead you. How does God lead us? By his faithful love. God helps us make sense of our today. Whatever we're facing, we can make sense. God helps us make sense of what is going on as he leads us by his faithful love. Finally, we can trust him by our, sorry, we can trust him with our future. When the people's here, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord. Until the people whom you purchased pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. So these references to the Edomites and the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Moabites and these other peoples, these are references to their very new future. They had a big future ahead of them. Big things were coming up. Just go through, read the book of Joshua. You can read all about these people. God was leading them towards the promised land, the land of Canaan that he had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. They're on their way to God's place, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And that is populated by these various people groups. And because God has parted the Red Sea and then used the sea to wipe out the Egyptians, the most powerful nation on the earth, then they can be assured that God is going to take care of, their, of the people in Canaan as well. Friends, if God has already sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us in our place and take the penalty for our sins, and if he has already sent his Holy Spirit to conform us into the image and likeness of Jesus, bit by bit, we can be assured that he is going to finish the job. Paul writes this in Philippians 1. Verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For some of us, the hardest days that we have ever endured are in our past. For others, those days are still, still in our future. Be sure of this. God is going to use that for his glory and for our good. It's not pointless. Final chorus. God is awesome. Just verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. There is no more Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought that he was a god, and now he is at the bottom of the Red Sea. The rulers of this world will all pass away. Our king is king forever and ever. And one day we will come face to face, and we will be with our king, face to face with him forever and ever. And we can trust and make sure, we know that he is going to make sure that it happens. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.